0: to the Planet Trillion Trees podcast. I'm Eva Monheim.
1: And I'm Hal Rosner. We are both certified arborists through the International Society of Arboriculture. The purpose of our podcast is to encourage tree planting and proper tree care for our urban forests, which include neighborhoods, parks, and other open spaces.
0: We will also cover a myriad of tree topics, including the important role trees play in relationship to the climate crisis. Thank you for joining us. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Monheim Microphones. Monheim Microphones designs and handcrafts top tier studio microphones and preamps right here in the United States in Hollywood, California. Their incredible line of innovative microphones and designs are used around the world by everyone from podcasters to top charting record producers and singers. They recently released their new royalty microphone, Monheim Microphones Unparalleled Excellence. MonheimMicrophones.com.
1: Verdant Earth Educators provides dynamic in-person training and online learning opportunities for environmental and horticultural businesses. Owned by ISA certified arborists and former university faculty, the Verdant Earth Educator team provides consultations on tree care and recommends climate resilient opportunities for your valued green spaces. Verdant Earth Educators is all about seeding knowledge for success. Find Verdant Earth Educators at burdeneartheducators.com.
0: This podcast is being recorded on July 7th, 2023. Kathy Gents is editor and publisher of the award winning Washington Gardener magazine based in Washington, D.C. She is also the editor of three planned society journals the Water Garden Journal, IWGS. The Azalean, ASA, and Fanfare, Daylily Society Region 3. She hosts the popular Garden DC podcast, which was recently named Best DC Podcast. She is co-author of the Urban Garden, 101 Ways to Grow Food and Beauty in the City. And her latest book is Groundcover Revolution. Her mission is to turn your thumb green. A lifelong gardener, Kathy believes that growing plants should be stress-free and enjoyable. Her philosophy is inspiration over perspiration. Welcome to the Planet Trillion Trees podcast, Kathy. We're delighted you could be with us today. Great to be here.
1: Hey, Kathy, we might as well jump right into it. We would love to just get a sense of what the inspiration was for writing Ground Cover Revolution. And I think throughout this conversation that we're about to have, tying it into trees and the dynamic between ground covers and trees. But what inspired you to write the book?
2: Sure, when I moved from a condo into a small detached home, uh, I inherited a landscape that was 90% turf grass from the sidewalk almost to the foundation with five huge oak trees on one side under the oak trees was pretty much solid English ivy, and then the rest was just turf grass lawn. And I was not interested in mowing at all or maintaining that. And so one of my first tasks was, how do I get rid of this expansive lawn that's just costing me money or time, either my time to maintain or paying somebody else to maintain it. So I started to experiment with going to different garden clubs, swaps, and reading garden catalogs and anything that would say the words Aggressive spreader, <laughs> or this one doesn't play well with others. I would read the descriptions. If somebody had a, a plant swap in particular, where it was like, This is taking over my lawn. I would be like sold. <laughs> All of those plants came home with me and I just like shoved them in as I was pulling back turf. I did the most backbreaking things that you're not supposed to do, which I talk about in my book. And then I discovered lasagna gardening and it was like, ah. so I basically uh, had a dump truck of leaf compost dropped off and I lasagna gardened my way to getting rid of the lawn and switching it over to all garden beds and ground covers. Can you tell our
0: listeners a little bit about that lasagna method?
2: Sure, so that's something they might also know under the title of layer gardening. Sometimes it's called that, has a few different names to it, but basically you're smothering what's underneath And it can be just anything that you weed whack down to the ground, you leave that. So if it's just a bunch of weeds or if it's your lawn, whatever it is, just weed whack it as close as possible. Leave that good green stuff there. And then you're going to do a layer of newspaper or some people say cardboard. I'm not a big cardboard fan. We can go into that in a minute. And I just do thick layers of newspaper, have a second person on hand to wet that down for you or have the hose handy. <laughs> the second you turn your back on newspaper, it flies away on you uh, in the slightest breeze. And then you're gonna do a thick layer, I say at least three to four inches of any organic material you have on hand. For me, in the mid-Atlantic US, we have plenty of composted leaf manure, leaf mulch. It could also be called leaf compost. Sometimes people might use straw or pine fines whatever organic material you have that will break down. And that will act as your organic matter that will break down underneath the newspapers by the next... So if you did that in the fall, by spring, you can plant into that and you have beautiful soil underneath that newspaper, which is just tree pulp and soy ink, has disappeared. So, And that's why I'm not a big fan of cardboard because it takes usually more than a season or two for the cardboard to break down a lot of the cardboard that you're getting these days and i'm not going to name the company mail order company sending has a film of plastic and a tiny film that you don't really see but you can probably feel it with your hand because they're delivering in the rain and of course who wants a soggy cardboard box also lots of tape and other stuff to take off of it so i keep my cardboard layer to pathways. So like my vegetable garden, I might do a thick layer of those broken down boxes after you remove the tape and stuff, of course, and then put wood chips on top. That's just to keep weeds down versus the lasagna and the, or the layer process. We're trying to establish new growing or planting beds. And relating to trees, another reason why I'm not a big fan of using the cardboard layer in that lasagna process is it can sometimes suffocate tree roots. If you have a thick layer of cardboard in there, it's not allowing the oxygen, it's not allowing as much of the the rain to come through as well. So they've done some studies on that and that's not the best layer to have. Like if you were to do layers of cardboard and then dump wood chips on top and surround your tree with that.
0: Yeah, and I I know that we've done a lot of that work with at the university and cardboard was definitely used in walkways where you have a lot of traffic or if you're moving your wheelbarrow through there, it really does keep a nice layer and the weeds are suppressed so you don't have to worry about it.
1: Yeah, this is reminding me, Kathy, about the last time we had you on, and that was a great episode because we we did a deep dive on small urban trees. Mm -hmm. And maybe we could start there and just kind of talk about the do's and don'ts, or at least the insights you can share about establishing ground covers into root zones.
2: Yeah, so... What I recommend and talk about in the book a lot is starting small, especially with plugs. If you can get a hold of ground covers at the plug stage, which is a little bit bigger than the seedling, but smaller, say, than that quart size, certainly smaller than the gallon size. And that's a lot easier to work in amongst tree root zones and helps to establish the ground cover. And in two to three years, it's going to be the same size. It's more economical. It's easier for you. And I feel like a lot of us don't have access if you're not a professional horticulturalist to the plug size, but more and more now can order through wholesalers, like do a group order, or if you're establishing a large size ground cover area, you can do a few trays plug size and get those. Because of course, garden centers usually are sizing plants up for you to full size. And that's a little bit. Farther on than we want. If you did only have access, say to a gallon size hellebore or something like that, take it out, bare root it, get as much soil off, and try to divide it even. Maybe you can get it into three or four clumps, and then that's a lot easier to put in amongst the tree roots.
0: Yeah, that's a good that's a good idea and important because you you don't want to disturb the roots themselves. So I think that's a that's a great idea. The other thing some of the benefits of of having ground covers which people don't talk enough about is that they don't consume the same amount of moisture that grass does mm-hmm. uh, around a tree they consume less surprisingly even though they they can be bigger and they keep the tree roots cooler
2: so they're shading the tree roots They're usually working their roots down deeper to a deeper level, and that's probably why they're using less resources that way, whereas turf grass tends to stay in that first, what, three to four inches at the most it's going down. Also, under a large tree, compacted soil is not a great place to establish a lawn in any case. (laughs) You're going to have a hard time getting that perfect green carpet there, and so maybe... You want a lawn somewhere else, you know, for kids to play on or for your dogs. But under a tree really isn't the ideal place to be growing turf grass.
1: It's great to have a book like this come out, Kathy, because I hope Ground Cover Revolution really inspires not only the homeowner, but the landscape professional. Because I think we can all agree there's a huge monoculture right now with the Pacassandra and English ivy. It, it, those are the dominant two. You mm-hmm. go to the big box stores and it's for sale there. And I think the horticulture community is really going to welcome the opportunity to learn about new species and mm-hmm. new things to be using. And and maybe this is a time to ask, what are you excited about? What What did you come away with from writing this book that you wish people knew about, I guess, you know, in the Northeastern United States at least?
2: Yeah. And I think that's a good point that this gives landscape professionals something to show their clients and discuss with them. So they might not be able to picture a big swath of mondo grass. They can see the little little plugs or something of what it's going to look like filled in. So in the chapters or profiles, we try to have a close-up of the plant, but then what it looks like in realistically in situation for them to have that. And that's what I was excited about. So I came away with real excitement for a lot of the new carex that are available on the market now. I think carex is one of the most versatile ground cover choices. There's some great native ones, there's some great imports coming from Ireland and Europe and Asia that are great problem solvers. They're deer resistant, super low maintenance, easy to establish. They're not monsters. <laughs> You know, like some ground covers. (laughs) Inherently that's what makes it a ground cover, is it's spread over the ground. That's you know, so and that's also what makes it bad behave sometimes is that they're aggressive spreaders. So Kyrics, if there's any flaw in them, it's that they're not spreading fast enough. They'll reseed and make little babies around them, but you will probably start to get a thickness of a good ground cover of it. You'll need to start with lots of plugs.
0: You know, um, I was just at uh, Mount Cuba for their their open house and they always mm-hmm. do their trials there. And, you know, if anybody wants to find information about Mount Cuba, just look up their trials on, online on their website and you could find the results of, of all the different types of plants that they've tested and the actual uh, the benefits of the ones that are really performing, uh, doing a high performance. And Carex was one of them. Carrots. They had a really great display of carrots there. So if you want to take a trip to to Mount Cuba, they have some great examples. But one of the things that I think is is wonderful about your book is the ground cover and their properties. It's six six pages of information chart and color color coordinated charts that actually tells you what kind of soil it can handle, what kind of lighting it can handle, and and so on. And, you know, talks about salt tolerant versus um, disease resistance versus um, deer tolerance, et cetera. And these charts are probably the most valuable information in the book, not to push aside the other information. Mm-hmm. But if you need something fast, and you're going to a garden center and you know they have the opportunity to purchase something, these charts are worth the value of the book.
2: Yeah, I think they. I agree that they're the most valuable for people who just want to go down the list and they say, I want something that has wildlife benefit, but it's deer resistant and tolerates shade and I'm in a fire area. So that was one of the categories I added almost last minute to the book. That's when the California wildfires. and Now we got the Canadian wildfires. So I was like, you know what? We really need to have a discussion about ground covers that are not just going to, you know, bring the fire right up to your house. <laughs> so-
0: That's called the firewise section, which I think is fantastic. Thank you for adding that. That was great.
2: Yeah, and I think going back to your point about Carex at Mount Cuba, I was just going to point out that the top one in their survey, Carex woodyi, I didn't include it in the book, even though it's a wonderful ground cover, because it is not available really in the trade yet. So I have Carex Pennsylvanica and a couple other Carex that I talk about in the book that are more widely available. And that's what I tried to do in the book is... I don't want to frustrate people by giving them things that they couldn't get locally. So that's the 40 plus or so profiles I did are things that are mainly available in most garden centers worldwide that you're going to easily get a hold of and not so rare that you're going to have to like hunt down and find that single plant at that one online nursery and pay $50 for it.
0: Yeah. Well, thank you for that.
1: For the people, uh, Kathy, that are Googling as they listen, can you give us the the spelling on that genus, curax?:
2: Curex, it's Wood-I-I, so Woody-I, so should come up pretty easy, and maybe okay. I'll help as I do it. So it's also called Wood's Sedge, Wood as in the, a person's name, Wood Sedge, so it's actually named after a gentleman. Gotcha. I thought it was like a wood sedge, like I'd always heard it called that, like as is a forest sedge.
1: <laughs> so right.
2: What's really interesting that came out in the Mount Cuba trial, which came out right after my book was published, is that they mowed the sedges as if you were mowing a lawn to test them as well. And I would never have thought about mowing regularly mowing sedges. Um, Because that's kind of the reason we're one of the reasons we're getting away from the turf grass lawn is not having to do the mowing maintenance. But it was interesting to see their results that if you did mow the woody eye, it bounced back and acted just like a turf grass would. So it looked just as good, just as thick, and took that. You know, whereas some other sedges or carex would not love that treatment. But the whole point I think of the Carex is that beautiful kind of mop head look, a little bit looser look than a turf grass lawn.
1: Yeah, oh, it sounds fantastic. I think one thing we kind of learned in the last year is the importance, and I think there's a tie in here between ground covers in the residential landscape and then worldwide, the the uh, recommendation, uh, you know, to the institutions that are out there planting trees essentially to mitigate climate change but there has been discussion and I know the New York Times pushed it when they wrote a piece last year about preservation of grasslands so this seems like a nice you know closing the circle of saying hey you're going to be establishing grasslands essentially we're calling them ground covers now but we are establishing that type of plant community right in the home landscape and you and your and the planet benefit similarly in terms of, you know, carbon capture and and, uh, water preservation and such.
2: Mm -hmm. And ecosystem benefits. Yeah, I agree. I think so. There's similar, you know, theories and books like Benjamin Vought's Prairie Up, where he's talking about converting your home landscape to a prairie. So using some of those ground cover plants and grasses, but also using some of the Midwestern native perennials amongst it and then there's similar books on mini meadow landscapes. So there's a lot of convergence in that basically we're all talking about the same thing, which is reduced turf grass lawns and having something more earth friendly and beneficial maybe to pollinators, maybe something more beautiful to look out out your window than a turf grass lawn, and certainly hopefully lower maintenance after the establishment. And I don't want to like, Candy coated that the establishment of a ground cover or a prairie or a mini meadow just happens overnight, like bink. So it takes a couple years to establish it, but then after that, it should be low maintenance.
0: There, there's a couple things I want to point out that you, when you were talking about mowing, the whole mm-hmm. idea of not mowing underneath a tree is so that you don't hit or knock the root systems. And mm-hmm. so many times we'll go out. I know how seen it, I've seen it when I go out and go on a tree call, and you see. The roots along the surface have been scarred so much from the mower that it actually helps to bring in a disease into the tree. So that's what we want to avoid. The other, the other thing I wanted to mention, you were saying woody eye, if you, if, if for our listeners, when you see a species named with a double eye at the end, that's always a person's name. Mm -hmm. of the plant hunter that discovered it or created or whatever like that and sometimes you'll actually see an i a at the end of a species and that also is that's the old form of a person's name that has not been transitioned yet so just so you you have some idea of that and what i really like about your ideas in the book is they're not only sustainable, they're regenerative, they're colorful, that we might not typically see in a shady area because you are bringing these ground covers in. But also, you were talking about grass and looking at lawn. When you have a breezy day, there's nothing more beautiful than seeing a plant move, especially a carix, moving across the landscape it creates a rhythm and visual that you wouldn't get with a lawn. Mm
2: -hmm. Yeah, especially the Pennsylvania Sedge, the Pennsylvanica, that is so beautiful when you have a grouping of that and it just looks like that amber waves of grain that we have in our collective memory. That's what people are thinking about in a pasture grass as well, a little bit looser with some nice movement to it. Absolutely.
1: So... I believe the other upside, and it, I, now's a great time to speak to it, since summer is here in the northeastern United States and intermittent precipitation and certainly some droughts and mini droughts. And if we keep the conversation focused on Pennsylvania, how would a plant like that be faring, Kathy, uh, as the temperatures ramp up in you know, long days and actually long nights of, of warmth as well and precipitation kind of? less than predictable. They do okay as drought tolerance. hmm
2: Most carrots, once established, are fairly drought-tolerant. And mm-hmm. that's one good thing around tree roots, which can be really greedy, as I call them, <laughs> because they like to soak up all that moisture. So the Carex is pretty well-behaved. If it goes to a little bit of brown tips, if we had like, say, six weeks of drought, it's fairly quick to recover. And it's not going to be so unsightly. Say like if you used ladies mantle, another perennial, which is a moisture-loving perennial underneath in that type of area, that would brown out within a week or so. So Carrick's very forgiving in that aspect.
0: One of the other things I think is neat too is that you can also plant bulbs in between these carrots or whatever whatever other ground covers you decide to put down that actually is seasonal so that when the foliage starts to turn yellow, it all kind of goes back into the ground and kind of disappears in the landscape. The idea of the bulb foliage just kind of being enveloped into the the ground cover that's there and disappears, which you call swallowing, I do believe. Or is that, is that how you called it, the, the ground cover is swallowing up?
2: you know, you get the beautiful ephemeral bulbs coming up in the springtime and they're almost all little guys, right? You know, the snowdrops and things. So easy to place amongst tree roots and benefit, especially under deciduous trees and having that winter sun. And then you have something to fill in, especially if you're using a not evergreen um, ground cover. So, So like some of the The ferns that might die back in the wintertime, then you get the little bulbs to come up. The ferns come up and totally cover that foliage, as you say, after they finish blooming. So you get that nice ebb and flow of the seasons. But I love bulbs. I feel like for those procrastinators and um, busy people, we'll just call ourselves amongst us, (laughs) bulbs are like the best set it and forget it plants there are. So you just plant them once and you have them forever.
0: Yeah, and you could have spring blooming and fall blooming and not have to worry about a replanting or anything like that. And again, if it if it's in no an area where it's not being mowed, you're not gonna lose the bulb.
2: Yeah, and I was gonna say you you had talked about running over tree roots with the mower. But I find the local, I watch the mow and blow guys come in my neighborhood. It's the weed whackers that they're just like, you know, this poor little newly planted cherry tree doesn't have anything around the base of it, but there's grass or weeds growing up to the, the base of the trunk. And they're just like taking that string trimmer and just, and it's just scarring it up. And I'm like, no, the bark is the best part of that little cherry tree when it grows up. The damage they're doing with that is i don't might not introduce a disease but certainly is not aesthetically pleasing yeah that's very true
1: so let's say someone has put together an installed landscape of mature trees and then retrofitted if you will a collection of ground covers and you know carefully done their research perhaps worked with a landscape designer moving forward Is there maintenance considerations, particularly in terms of density? I mean, do you go in there and thin the collection, or can you kind of just let nature take its course? It depends on the ground cover.
2: So some of them can get really thick, and that you might want to thin them out, certain perennials. You might want to dig and move them around every few years just because they're going to get so root bound. But most ground covers spreading ones, you're not going to have to do that. It might just be a weed pop up in the middle, even in the middle of my patch of Lily of the Valley, which gets no sunlight. It's under the eaves of the house. It pretty much doesn't get any water either. (laughs) There's a tiny little ash tree trying to come up in the middle of that patch. And I'm sure a bird dropped that at some point. So I'll definitely have to go in there and just snip that out, unfortunately. Yeah, I would say most of the pushback is either you have a spouse or partner or somebody living with you who is in love with their lawn. And then the other person in that household is like, I just want to get rid of this maintenance nightmare that I have to do. And the other person is like, no, I like the look of a lawn. Or it's a community feedback thing in that their HOA, their retirement community they might might live in, their town, the expectation is that you will have nothing but turf grass lawn out front. And whether that's an acre or whatever it is, you're just going to maintain that even if you never set foot on that lawn ever. So then there's a pushback for trying to replace that and getting that culture changed.
0: Yeah, and I think that that's true because if you have something that doesn't look like the rest of the neighborhood, and you made me think about the idea that when you put a ground cover down, and if you're in an HOA, you should think about something that looks neater rather uh-huh. than something that looks neat or something that's little tall. correct the likelihood of them not liking you it's much better and also the person who has to compromise with the person who wants the lawn i think lawns become better when they're smaller and they're appreciated
2: mm-hmm. i agree
0: well, I heard someone say that if you don't use your lawn every day or at least twice a week, you shouldn't have a lawn.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. If there's nobody stepping foot on it, then it could be another type of ground cover or lawn. But, you know, of course, if you might have grandkids coming over once a week to play volleyball on it, that's maybe you want to maintain that little croquet lawn area, a small center lawn surrounded by a border of perennials and trees and shrubs is beautiful. We're not saying take away your entire turf grass. (laughs) We're not saying that. We're saying reduce it to what you actually can maintain and looks good. And I'm thinking also not just of residential lawns, I'm thinking of churches, businesses, shopping centers. Why do you need a front lawn on a church that extends an acre and a half from the sidewalk to the front steps. You're not doing any ceremonies on that. You're not using it. It's just completely because that's what's expected to be in the landscape. And there could be easily a little forest garden there, native garden. There could be an edible garden. The rest could be ground covers.
0: Actually, that's a good idea. I had a student do a project a long time ago in one of my university classes, and they did an edible food garden at a church. hmm and it was so well received by the community because people who couldn't afford buy things, they actually came there and did their picking, and it made a huge difference in the community. Um, and they included ground covers in that as well. It's a benefit for everybody.
2: Yeah, like there are ground covers that are edible ground covers. There's no reason why you couldn't do a edible herbs mixed in there. The short shrubs, as you mentioned, like aronia, some of the natives, and it could either benefit the hungry, or it could benefit wildlife, depending on your church's mission or what you wanted to maintain there. But yeah, a lot of churches are getting heavily taxed for stormwater use of their landscape because they have large parking lots that fill up once a week, right? Usually, maybe a couple times for other classes or events, but they have to pay for all that impervious surface. So they really need to look at better ways of using their landscape to mitigate that.
0: That's a great idea.
1: I feel like this is one of those conversations, Kathy, where, you know, we're kind of illuminating or watching inertia ramping up in terms of a ground cover revolution. And and Eva and I have kind of seen that happen a couple of times. We've been talking a lot about the mini forest revolution, you know, using the Milwaukee method. And I feel like I'm at a point in time in horticulture where I hope I get to witness revolutions continue with the same kind of ecological and sustainable practice and expansion thereof. And where I'm drawn to is the vast suburban office parks. That seems to be the largest track of weed free, high maintenance in every way expanses. Well, that's a, turf. a great idea. Mm-hmm. For sure.
2: I would say that there are many that are unoccupied. You know, post-COVID, yeah. <laughs> that they're still paying for the lawn maintenance. The sprinkler systems are still coming on, even when it rains or not. That is my most frustrating sight that I always see. I was like, I wish I could have captured a picture of that, but it's so hard to capture a picture of rain <laughs> with sprinklers on. So little thought goes into some of these, but I definitely see a sea change coming, as you're saying, and that there are new generations coming up that are much more conscious of these ecosystems and what's happening. And people are starting to question a lot of the status quo. Like, why are we doing it like that? Why does it need to be that way?
0: The other thing too is, you know, all the grass cutting, I think people are worried that they're going to lose their jobs, but Mm -hmm. there's so much to do in our environment besides sitting on a mower and mowing. We could be reforesting. We could be, and and these companies that are doing the lawn cutting, if they were pivoting themselves to do other things like little tiny forests.
2: Forward-thinking companies, you know, landscapers should think about, you know, marketing themselves as you have large trees. Let me install your ground covers. And working hand-in-hand maybe with their community arborists and working together. There's totally different silos right now. There's the turf grass maintenance guys, and then there are the tree maintenance guys. And they're not usually any um, places where they are talking to each other.
0: Yeah, you're right about that. The industry has to come together.
1: Yeah, and I I think you trust, fingers crossed, that the innovators are out there. I see it already happening in, in California, you know, where turf is... Very much discouraged uh, uh, as an option. In fact, the downside is artificial turf is seems mm. to be gaining a foothold. At the same time, the choosing plants carefully that can withstand drought. Um, back here on the East Coast, though, or for communities worldwide that are establishing street trees, do you have a comment there, Kathy, or an observation on? Using ground covers in, for lack of a better term, the tree pit, like Mm -hmm. the four by four. Go ahead.
2: Yeah, sometimes we call it the hell strip or the tree box. There's so many different local names I found for that. So some municipalities, including Washington, D.C. here, they actually disallow any other plantings in a tree box aside from the tree. You're not supposed to have turf crash, You're not supposed to have anything else in there but mulch around the base of the tree. And I have been arguing back about that. I think a nice ground cover layer would actually encourage people to water and maintain that tree because that's they're trying to rely on the people on that block to then look after the tree once it's been planted in future years. And then, of course... People are in these tiny row house gardens and they naturally expand. They're like, well, that's some empty space there. Let me put in a little couple of shrubs around that tree. So we could guide them with a palette of what would be workable around the roots of that tree, which is already in a small confined space and add some benefits to it instead of taking it away. I think they're afraid that people are going to grow corn or something in there that are going to attract <laughs> rodents or
1: something crazy. Yeah, right, right. Yeah. We well,
0: you know in Philadelphia they were not sure, well, should we should we allow people to plant? And what they did discover, and we even saw it in our own community at Glenside, that when people put plants around their tree, they came out to water. And we had one instance where we had a hairdresser and she wanted these high pink plants out underneath her tree. Every year she was diligent about planting them and watering them and our trees
2: were twice as big as all the other trees on the street., but mm-hmm. a great example. And then we're not even talking about the treeless tree boxes that pop up all over the city, too. So now they're just sitting there completely empty, lost the tree at some point, maybe a car left the road or just lost a disease. And it can take three, five years for that tree to get replaced. Meanwhile, you're just supposed to leave it empty. So I just think that's, you know, wrong headed.
0: Yeah, and I I think sometimes the policies are made because they only have one vision and it's their vision. And if they don't have any input, from other people within the community. And if if you want diversity, that's the best way to bring diversity.
2: And also the compaction for people walking in them. So a lot of the street boxes around here have a little iron kind of fencing around there and then they'll have a little, please move your dog along type sign. (laughs) And so if they have... A nice covering, say, of flowering hostas or epimediums, people are not going to step out of their car and step into that. They step around it versus when it's not, when it's just wood chips, they're stepping on it all the time. I, I watch it all the time and it's compacting and damaging right there to the tree roots as well.
0: Yeah, I think a study needs to be done with have someone like the hairdresser and have the empty tree mm-hmm. pit and to actually see the difference. Although we were able to see the difference, but we need to do that
2: and white paper on it, you know? Exactly. Yeah, and I'd love to see different comparisons of ground covers under those. If it was a small, low growing shrub ground cover versus one that's evergreen versus one that's like a fleshy type herb, what people respect and don't walk in and enjoy too.
0: What about even seed and tornado? And it flowers? It, has, it attracts pollinators and puts back every year. It's a little.
2: It and it really well. Yeah, those succulents are such a great one, and they are so shallow rooted—just not even an inch down—that they're not taking anything from the tree.
1: So, just to make sure I'm understanding that you're talking about sedum, a uh, suitable—yes,
2: it's
1: a native, a native, a suitable one for street tree culture.
0: Yeah, I used yeah. to have them under my property. They did really
2: well. Yeah, And surprisingly, most people think of sedums and succulents as full sun. They do very well from part sun to part shade. You'll still get a little smattering of flowering, not as much flowering on the part shade end of things. I have some that spread under evergreen shrubs and trees and are just fine that way. Makes a great ground cover.
1: I'm just thinking about it maybe as a landscape designer or just a practical observer of how people move through cities, people have their earbuds in and they tend to be looking down, having some sedum right there at ground level. That's a good strategy. Who knows? You look at the sedum at ground level, your eye might even wander up that trunk to see, hey, branches and leaves. Who knew? Right.
0: Instead of being green unconscious.
2: Mm Mm-hmm.
1: Green blindness. I mean, if you're looking at a pile of
2: mulch or wood chips, then you're not thinking that's a living thing. You're just thinking that's... Or pebbles. I'll see pebbles and gravel used a lot in those street boxes too.
0: Well, we have to ask our question. So if working your ground covers around your trees, what would your favorite tree be to work your ground covers
2: around? Hmm, I'm going to say any tree, but yeah. Let me think of my favorite tree pairing um, with ground covers. I would say my Weeping hygiene Cherry. I love that, and I have ajuga around the base of it. And so it's just a solid bed of the classic ajuga, which comes up like in May with the purple flowers and then dies back. And because it's so shallow-rooted, similar to the succulents we talked about, they don't compete with each other. But the cherry tree roots are very surface. You know, They're very high up there. And it is a thirsty tree. So it does get a little bit extra watering because of the ajuga around the base. Like if I start to see that looking a little dry, that makes me pay more attention to the cherry tree. And I have the, it's kind of the purple mottled leaf ajuga, So it's got like a nice almost echo of that trunk color. And of course, when you have the beautiful um, flowering cherry tree in bloom, nothing can compare to that.
0: The other thing we have to think about too is the alleopathic plants like Norway maple and walnut and the ones that actually have a little bit of a poison coming from the roots that don't like things growing around them or only allow certain things to grow around there. And I think the, the state of Pennsylvania has a listing of those particular plants that can actually grow. I don't know whether Maryland does or not or Washington, D.C., but Definitely, those lists are really great to
2: look at through the extension. Yeah, I was going to say the extension services will have some, they'll talk about black walnuts. But most ground covers, I had looked them up, are suitable under black walnuts. Most of the ones I'm recommending that are at least shade tolerant, that's usually not an issue. It's usually something that's a little deeper rooted, like a shrub, like a hydrangea or something like that, that would get affected by the being under a black walnut.
1: Yeah, and i guess just observationally if you're listening and if you're considering it and if you're thinking oh i'd love to be part of the ground cover revolution but i just don't think this american beach is ever going to accommodate a new installation you know there's still a time and a place just to use a quality decomposing compost municipal compost a great load of wood chips and maybe some indigenous uh, stone, uh, in terms of you know, sizable or manageably sized rock and boulders, you know that it's still a, a great look. It, it keeps the mowers and the weed whackers away.
0: And you know what does really well under American beach is Claytonia. Mm.
1: Yes, yeah, so pretty.
2: Of
0: course, nothing better than seeing and carpet underneath the American mm. beach, mm. which is
2: yeah. Pretty.
0: And again, that's an nice. ephemeral, so mm-hmm. it blooms in the spring and disappears. So if you wanted to do something else. Mm-hmm.
2: I wonder if you could compare it with the bluets, the Quaker ladies that come up later. That would be really nice. Well,
0: this has been fun, Kathy.
2: And thank you so much for having me, both Hal and Eva. And I was just talking to a, a public garden horticulturist and he was saying a garden isn't finished until you add that ground cover layer. He was like, you could have these beautiful trees established first, that's your first layer, right? Then you do your shrubs and perennials. And then he, he's like the finishing touch, really what makes it a garden is those ground covers.
0: Uh, it's the carpet on the floor, right? Mm-hmm. Exactly. <laughs> Thanks again, Kathy.
2: Thank you.
1: Great to have you on, Kathy. You're a great guest. We look forward to having you on again soon. Thank you both. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye.
0: The Planet Trillion Trees podcast is edited by Andromedan Recordings in Hollywood, California. Cut. <sniffs>